Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today I have two guests. First time, Professor Dorit Naaman. Um, she's uh, the professor of films and media at Queen's University in Canada, and she's also the director of the uh, project Jerusalem We Are Here, which is a series of uh, walking tour of Catamon. And I just want to mention that uh, a previous guest, uh, Mona Halabi, uh, is also a contributor to this uh, project. And the second guest of the uh, podcast today is Marina Parinosu, Parisian. Of course, Parisino. Parisino, uh, author of a blog, My Palestinian Story, but also associate producer of Jerusalem. We are here. To Dorit and Marina, welcome. Thank you for Thank having you. us. I will start with Dorit. And as you know, there's only one question, the same question that I ask to all of my guests. Dorit, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? For my father's side, I'm a sixth generation Jerusalemite. Uh, my family came to Jerusalem from Hungary in the middle of the 19th century, uh, well before Zionism. And they were ultra-Orthodox Jews that eventually became more modern Orthodox Jews. And uh, my great-grandfather was uh, a member of the first Knesset, um, which was a, a very radical shift and a kind of a rebellion against his uh, own heritage and origins. My father was an atheist always. He did not believe in God and um, um, raised me atheist in Jerusalem, which sounds like an oxymoron, but really it's not. <laughs> In fact, Jerusalem is a very good place to grow up atheist because you have three prominent religions and so many sects and you, you can experience it as a kind of a comparative, uh, comparative religious experience rather than there is one way and there are uh, minorities as I experience it in Canada. So Jerusalem, um, my mother was also born in, um, in Jerusalem and uh, mostly raised raised on and off there but lived all her adult life in Jerusalem so uh, to me Jerusalem is home even though it has changed drastically in the years I have not uh, been living there full-time. Maria same question what is your Jerusalem in other words what is your connection with the city? Jerusalem is the place my mother called home it's the place where my great, great, great grandfather, Georges Stakleff, emigrated to from the Balkans, along with his brother in the mid 1800s. 
and where four generations of Shtaklevs built their lives. They married, they had children, they went to school, they worked, they played. It's the place where my grandfather moved to from the Greek island of Samos and where he met my Shtaklev grandmother and built a family. So it's a place first of convergence of different people where they mixed and coexisted. And then it became a place of dispersion. It's the place they lost in 1948. And it became the place about which they told stories. And there was, there was a lot of nostalgia in the stories, but also a lot of joy because their lives were rich and full and joyful in Jerusalem. So the stories drew me in and I, I couldn't get enough of them. And I started collecting them. And later, when years later, I got involved with the Jerusalem We Are Here uh, project and started my own blog. Um, my work on those stories became more, more methodical, more systematic. I started visiting Jerusalem regularly um, and I was able to see firsthand where all those stories took place. And the memories, my, my family's memories, which I've essentially inherited, they've become my own, they came face to face with reality. Um, and from that point, Jerusalem became like those those old black and white photographs that get re-photographed where you take the same frame, same angle, and then you super, you partially superimpose the black and white on the colored. So the black and white, um, the old black and white represents the abstract, the faded memory and, and, and the emotional imprint. And the colored one is the more modern, it's the reality, which is, it's grittier and harsher. So that's my Jerusalem. It's a collage of old and new, of family stories and real history, and the connections I have made in the process of exploring that. Marina, I want to ask you something because you mentioned something very important. You talked about joyful memories. When we look at Jerusalem 2021, there's not much joyful going on. I mean, between demonstrations, appropriations, political uh, struggles, uh, and so forth. To hear stories that are different, to hear about uh, joyful stories, something refreshing. So I was wondering, would you be able to share some of those with us just briefly? Well, the stories my family told was about their everyday life. And in fact, the more I read about history, the more I am perplexed by it as well, because having learned that they lived through, you know, the Arab revolt, the, the uh, World War II, the, the Nakba, but those are not, I mean, even though they were always mentioned, the focus was always on the, on the day-to-day -day stuff, even, even in the hard times. From, for example, my mother told me that they had the best time during World War II. Why? Because a lot of Greek officers were posted in Jerusalem, so the Greek girls of the Greek colony were having a ball with them. They were hosting them for lunches. Uh, my grandmother was supposed to, uh, she was hosting lunch every Sunday and they would always have a Greek officer. So the young girls were excited about that. Um, also my grand, my great grand, my great uncles, my grandmother's uh, uh, brother's um, cinema, the Regent. Uh, they always talked about the region. He owned the region cinema in the German colony so it was all about the region and what they saw there. And then their dances at the Greek club and their parties. I mean, it was, it was as if nothing else was happening around them. And now that I read history, I beat myself up for not having read it while they were still alive. And I could ask them how they reconciled the two. And I think this is one of the fascinating aspects of uh, integrating these stories into the sort of the official narratives. We lost the sense of uh, what, was daily lives. And we just think that everybody was involved in some form of a struggle, but actually people had interactions. Something that obviously in the last 20 years has been denied uh, because of the war, because of the lack of communication. So things are very different nowadays, but there were, there were avenues for people to meet and keep working together just beyond just the politics. And as you mentioned, the Arab revolt. Dorit, do you have stories too that you want to share about your family? 
Yes, I think that um, <clears throat> Jerusalem until 1948 was a very different city that we know it now. So my great grandmother, for instance, spoke two languages. They were Yiddish and Arabic. She didn't speak Hebrew. Hebrew was the language that came much later, but her the languages that she needed for her day to day were Yiddish and Arabic. And life was so integrated that Arabic was absolutely essential. Her husband, my great grandfather, uh, co-owned a grocery store, a vegetable stall, I'm not exactly sure, near Mashearim until 1929. So, and in fact, when my grandmother was married, we still have a, a beautiful um, set for coffee, uh, like the finjans, the little glasses and, the, and um, all this copper that is very beautifully engraved uh, that, he gifted my grandmother. So it was relationships that were beyond business relationship. Those were relationships of, um, of friendship and of integration. And um, I think even, even later on when my, when my father was a young, uh, a teenager in the 1940s, uh, he had a very close friend who was a Palestinian boy named Ishak. My father's name was Isaac Itzhak. So they had the same name. My father had a dog, he had a dog and they were absolutely um, friends even though this Ishak was in the Najada and my father was associated with the Haganah. And uh, so there was, a, there was a personal, like Marina said, there was a personal and then there were the bigger, the larger events and they didn't always mean that there was a separation or often they didn't until the war. I also don't like, you know, we talk often about East and West Jerusalem, but until 1948, there was no East and West Jerusalem. The neighborhoods were very, some neighborhoods were mis mixed and some neighborhoods were Palestinian only or um, Jewish only, but they were not uh, necessarily divided along the East-West. That is a result of the 48 war and its aftermath. So it was a very different, uh, a very different Jerusalem. When we were doing research for Jerusalem War here, we found out just in the few dozen families that people we have talked to and read about that in Katamon alone, there were uh, multiple couples that were intermarried, Jewish, Christian, Christian, Muslim, and Muslim Jewish and uh, no one was shunned. No one had to deny one identity in order to be part of the multiple communities. And not only that, communities were not crossing borders as people do nowadays, even though they do not really exist, but you are very much aware of the fact that you're walking in West Jerusalem or East Jerusalem and you're crossing certain lines and that's inevitable. Uh, just because you mentioned that, so I guess I want to ask about uh, the project. Dori, can you tell us what is uh, Jerusalem We Are Here, how this project was born, and what are the goals of this uh, amazing project, which I want to remind the listener, it's uh, available at JerusalemWeAreHere.com, correct? Yes, thank you. <clears throat> Jerusalem We Are Here is an interactive documentary that digitally and virtually brings the Palestinians back into the neighborhoods from which they were expelled by the 1948 war. So we're primarily focused on Katamon, but a little bit on the German colony and Bakka and the Greek colony as well. So these are neighborhoods in Southern Jerusalem that were primarily uh, Palestinian and uh, also had a bunch of consulates and embassies and um, some hotels, uh, lots of cultural life, the Greek club, that was a place where lots of events were taking place. Um, it was a very vibrant community and uh, neighborhoods that were established after the, by and large after the end of the First World War and into the British mandate over Jerusalem. And um, basically what happens is when you enter the project, you will enter at the Regent uh, Cinema, which was owned by Marina's great uncle, Nando Stakleff. And um, you, uh, from there you can choose to go on virtual walks. There are three different walks. And in every house where we had participants, we made a film together. So you get to watch short films. And uh, there are about 15 of those and a whole about the same number of audio files of all sorts. 
Some are more historical, some are more personal, letters read, um, poetry. And um, the other side of it is that there is a, a map of all those neighborhoods where every house that existed before 1948 is a live link. So people can send us information and we upload it on this map. This maps, as everyone knows, I think, are generally produced by states and states have certain um, agendas when they create maps, what they show and what they don't show, which layer, which, which time. It also seems like a flattened um, representation of space and time. And um, our map is really generate generated from the ground up by what we found in archives, by what uh, Mona Halabi uh, collected over many years, by what Anwar Ben Badis uh, collected, what um, uh, some of the connections Marina has. And since the project has been released in 2016, what people send us because they find the project and they send us photos and stories and further identifications. So this map is still growing and will uh, likely continue to grow. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I wondered uh, how did the connection between the two of you uh, start? It started with an email that I received from um, my aunt in New York, actually Nando Stackler's daughter, who received it. So the project sent out a call for residents of Katamon or their descendants as they were starting. And this email found itself to my aunt Cynthia, who knew I was the, uh, the family historian, the one with the bug. Um, so she sent it to me. Um, it was sent to her from Mona Halabi. Um, that was sent to her from, I think, from somebody from Zahrod. It was a chain of connections. And Mona was saying, you know, if you're interested in this project, write to them or write to me and I will forward. And I wrote directly to the project. I explained who I was. At the time I was in Cyprus, I split my, my year. I spent half my time in Cyprus and I said I'm in Cyprus at the time, but I live in San Francisco um, and I'm you know, very interested in this. I'm already doing my own research. And then out of courtesy, I copied Mona who responded straight away. And she said, Marina, I live in Berkeley. Um, so her and I connected. And then when I came back to San Francisco, we started a series of Skype calls with Dorit uh, Dorit was exploring different, she wanted each um, participant to have a different angle to their story. It wasn't a strict, you know, tell me the story of your family's Nakba. Um, so we started a series of uh, Skype calls. And then in, in the summer of 2014, I was going home again to Cyprus, which is just a skip and a hop from Jerusalem. So I suggested that I go over and I met Dorit in person for the first time. She filled me at my grandfather's house or whatever it's become of it. It, it just went from there. Then the three of us, Mona, Dorit and I formed a very strong friendship um, and it just went from there. Dorit, the technology of a website looks like you're basically walking through the neighborhood. How did you come up with this idea? Because it makes you feel you're actually walking throughout, the, throughout Catamon. So it's not just about description, it's not a picture, but it, there is a sense of motion through it. It's a great question. Uh, when I started this project, um, I, my parents uh, moved to live uh, in what used to be an old soccer field in Catamon by, uh, by the British and then the Hapoel soccer field and became a development and they moved there. And um, I was uh, visiting for six months and they rented, I had a one-year-old child and they rented an apartment for us nearby in what I knew was a Palestinian home, but I didn't quite know anything else about it. And um, I um, slowly, I realized by a fluke that I was living next to Khalil Sakakini's house. And he's, then I found his daughter, Hala Sakakini's memoir, and in it, there was a hand-drawn map with names. So I, um, I started there and I thought, what would it be like if we could find some of these people and kind of make some films with them and project them on the houses? But um, I was also interested in the history of Katamon post-48, which I can talk about maybe later. Um, so to answer your question, what I was imagining initially was that we will make a bunch of films and project them on the houses 
it will be an installation, people will come and watch it. And it took me quite a long time to realize how inhospitable that idea was to Palestinians. Even the ones who have access, who don't need to get a permission and get through a checkpoint or their passport, uh, even if they have American passport, they can get into, uh, into Jerusalem because they have a hawiya or some other limitation. Even Palestinians in East Jerusalem don't feel comfortable in West Jerusalem. And uh, I had an experience with a participant We were standing in front of her house and I saw her, I was filming and I saw her body language kind of shrink. And when I looked away from the camera, I realized there was a bylaw officer giving parking tickets. And this person has absolutely no authority over her, but it was a person, a figure of authority of the state and of the city, municipality. And she shrunk, she was worried. And that was a, a kind of, uh, for me, that was, that was the moment where I realized we can't do this in the space. This is just wrong. This project needs to be available to any Palestinian without checkpoints and passports and, um, and, defend, and, and having to defend your right to be in the space. So that's how it became, um, how and why it, it became online. Um, and then I worked, uh, we worked quite uh, for a long time with a company in, um, in Toronto that built the platform. We use Google Street View, their car, as much as possible and created our own content so that uh, it integrates quite smoothly between the two so that we can introduce our own assets. And we really try to do it very low key. The production, everything was quite uh, as, as kind of as subtle as uh, possible. I want to ask you something about, again, sort of the structure of the project. And this is a question for both of you. Essentially, you had to go out mapping the neighborhoods and trying to figure out who were the owners of these houses. What are the challenges? What were the, uh, the, the obstacles? How did you go through and navigate through the questions about uh, you know, knowledge and sometimes lack of knowledge? Because as far as I know, a lot of people are not necessarily aware of the fact that they live in previously owned houses by, by Palestinians, or they have some knowledge, but they don't really engage with it. Um, I'll... I'll... I'll speak about it a little bit, but then I want, I would like Marina to tell the story about the picture, the trying to find, um, you will know the picture that we were looking for the slope for the house on the slope next to the Abdin circle and how we found that house. Um, the archives, interestingly, the Israeli state archive and Jerusalem municipality historical archive um, had very little information um, and it's curious because the British, when they left their colonies, they tended to leave all the civil material in place. Whether stuff hasn't been cataloged and is still sitting in boxes somewhere or whether it has been um, destroyed, we don't know. But uh, we got some information through the archives. Primarily, you know, somebody... Uh, has built an outhouse without getting a permit. And now the municipality is writing a letter that he needs to take it down. But when they say that, they actually list the adjacent properties and who owns them. So that gave us a little bit of information. Talking to Israelis, they generally don't know who owned their houses. And to my surprise, many were actually interested in finding out. Um, I have over the years gotten emails um, from people who are who want to know and ask whether we know whether we have a way to know or a way to connect them with the people when the house is listed on our um, on the map um, you asked about the gaps and i think that the gaps are incredibly important uh, they're as important as the houses that we have information for they represent what happens when people flee at wartime because they don't always take their documents and their photo albums. And um, so some people just don't have the evidence. Some people have been too traumatized to talk to their kids about it. And by the time their grandchildren started asking questions, there was no one to tell. What we did find that is interesting is that in a few occasions, 
um, a young, a younger person after the project was out, a younger person would take their grandparent on a virtual walking tour and the grandparent would go like, oh, that's so-and-so's house. Because when you see the houses, they're often changed or their fences, there are trees that have grown. Uh, the houses went through many transformation, but some of them are still recognizable and there are definitely some landmarks. And then they would say, okay, like Marina was, she got the instruction from that bean square you go, down the street and you know it should be there she even had a picture and we couldn't find it and i'll pass it on to marina to tell this the story of how we found that house right so um yeah before going well before one of my trip i think before the first trip when i was going to jerusalem i was given instructions to find uh the house where my grandmother's sister lived and it's the house where the family my my mother's family moved to after the bombing of the Semiramis because the Casotis house, my grandfather's house was two doors up from the Semiramis. And when the bombing happened, they and the, the neighborhood emptied, they moved with the Gaetanopoulos who were close to the Abdeen circle. So my mother gives me instructions, uh, directions. She says, you know, go down the Katifora. Katifora is a word Dorit loves, which means the downhill slope. Uh, when you get to the Semiramis, turn left. And I knew where the Semiramis was, so that was fine. And then you take the first ride and da, 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 and you, you get to Marika's house. And I go there and we're trying to find this. And it was only afterwards that I realized that half the streets that are there now didn't even exist back then or whether there were dirt roads. So my mother's first ride after the Semiramis wasn't what is today first ride. And I had a picture that just didn't fit. I had taken, when I first visited with her in 1986, I took one photograph because then I shot film and film was expensive. So I had one single photograph, but I also had some old photographs I found in my mother's archives where she had taken pictures outside the Gaetanopoulos house uh, with her cousins. And there was um, a house with a round balcony and we tried, we, we just drove around Abdeen Circle and nothing quite fit. There were a couple with round structures, but they weren't quite right. Um, and I visited the area again and again. And one day I, I actually went with Mamelo Gaetanopoulos, who's of that family and is actually a well-known musician in Israel. Um, so he drove me around. And one day as he was driving me back to the old city, to my hotel, suddenly it dawned on me that perhaps the photograph I had was printed the wrong way around. So I went to the hotel, I pulled out the photograph, I reversed it in, on the computer, and suddenly it made more sense. I could see the Luizidis property. So we went back with Mamelo, and I'm still looking for it. And then I, then I can see the, the Luizidis property, and I'm sort of trying to navigate through this photograph, which I have on my iPad. And I'm approaching this house next to it and there's this huge tree and I go behind the tree and suddenly there's the round balcony. And it all made sense. So I knew exactly where my uh, aunt's house was, which was on the other side of the road. Can I ask you, how did you feel about it when you, when you found your aunt's house there, you know, at a personal level? Well, because it took so much to get to it, it was like a triumph. Uh, it was sort of bingo, here it is. And I actually, and afterwards, there was, there was a little bit of a anticlimax after that. It was a sort of, so what? Because so much had built up to finding that. But then later on, when I started getting more involved in the family story, then I realized what the value of that is. It's, it's connecting the old with the new. It's connecting all these stories with what's there today and making them more real. Yeah, I, I would like to respond to that, to the so what. I think that to me, every time we have an identification, it's both, there is both the heaviness of knowing that people have lost, not only have they lost their homes and their lives as they have known it, um, and often all their possessions, um, but, um, 
but that the knowledge of where it is has been taken away because streets didn't have street names and all the street names have been changed and the houses have been converted and divided. And so it's very hard, right? So, um, so having an identification, I think is, a, is an important political act because no matter, no matter what the political solution to uh, the you know, Palestinian-Israeli conflict, there will never be justice and there will never be peace without people's losses being recognized. So that, that to me is, so that's why I feel it's also a victory. It's, there is a heaviness, but it's also a victory. Um, and I, you know, in, in, um, when we screened the, the project in Bethlehem, um, I was asked uh, about the map. I was asked, aren't you worried that this is, people will now know where their houses are and they can go and, and try to claim them. And I'm not worried about that. I don't think it's the elephant in the room. I don't think until we, we sort out the dispossession of 48, we will never have, we will never have a, a stability and there will never be justice. So um, we have to start recognizing it before we can imagine even a, a different future. And the other thing I would say about, about recognizing when I, I screened the project in, um, in um, Washington DC, there were two women about my age that started crying throughout. And at that screening, um, Jamil Tube was with me. He was, uh, at the time, he was 88 or 89. And he flew from uh, Albuquerque to, to come to meet me in, in uh, Washington, D.C. And he gave a lot of information to, to the project. I have a wonderful story, actually, about him um, trying to help us identify a house and sending me directions. And he said, when you take the number four, which I knew from Halasakakini, the last stop of the number four bus, which I knew where it was, and you turn around and you walk, and then you walk up to here, and then you walk left, you know, and you will find it. So he, he could, from memory, right, years later, so many years later, tell me exactly how to find the house. But anyways, he was there, and I told him, Jamil, you tell me where you want to go, and I'll go there. So at one point, he asked for the Sakab grocery store, and I couldn't remember. I was hovering over a few houses, and when you over over a house, if it has information, the name flashes and it tells you if there are pictures or if there's more information. And um, anyway, so what it turned out after the screening that as I was hovering over these houses, I located the house that belonged to the father of these two women. And between them and another family member, there were three or four trips to Jerusalem where the father gave instructions and none of them could find the house. And here we were in Washington, D.C., and we found the house, right? So, and that, that identification came from one of those documents from the British about expanding a road or whatever and letting everyone know that, you know, two meters from their property will be taken away or something. So um, there were enough names to identify a few houses along a stretch of the road. So those things are both important and emotional. We are going to take a short break. Thank you for listening. And remember to join our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram account. If you have a story about Jerusalem that you want to share or someone that you want me to interview, please get in touch. Enjoy the rest of the show. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. They're emotional indeed. And that's where I want to go next is the power of emotions. The moment people realize that those houses been emptied in 1948 and the Palestinians that are able now to find the old places, particularly the younger families, you know, rely on the memory of uh, the great grandparents or their parents. How did you manage this flow of emotion? What kind of criticism? Because it's easier to see via acclamation. This is a great project. But I'm sure that you also had to deal with criticism, perhaps even on both sides. What was your experience of that? You know, there, were, there was less criticism from the Israeli side than I expected, I have to say. Um, I, I think that I was, you know, I definitely was expected more hate mail and hate comment, hateful comments. And there, there are the occasional ones. But more often than not, there is curiosity. And a lot of Israelis, I find, are willing to acknowledge the loss of the Palestinians, whether they're willing to take the next step and say, what's my responsibility to remedy that? I'm not sure, right? That, that depends, that varies uh, greatly. Um, but certainly, I have, I have led walks in the neighborhood. I have um, done a, a, an event together with Zohot, the Israeli organization, the only organization in Israel that calls for the right of return of Palestinians. And uh, we did an event where three, we had three houses um, that opened their doors to us to install the project in, in various incarnations. And, um, and hundreds of people came over. So it was a kind of open door, open house uh, type event and a few hundred people came that weekend and it wasn't always the people you would have thought and what was amazing was that people recognized that the houses they lost in Europe or in Morocco and that their parents or grandparents missed that they were that there was a, a similarity there right and and that's a big step. And again, I don't know, you know, equating the situation is not a solution. Um, there are many, many differences, of course, especially between the Second World War and the Nakba in, in all kinds of, of ways. I mean, we have participants in the project whose house in Shahtarah is threatened right now, right? So the Nakba has never ended for them. It's not, it's not something of the past. Um, so there, there are many differences, but just for Israelis to be able to see that, I think, is um, and, and be open to that. And I think partially it's because they don't necessarily stand with a Palestinian in the same space, then feeling they need to uh, justify their right to be in the space or that they need to apologize or that they need to challenge the Palestinian on, on their right to the space. So they have time, they watch it online. They watch it in a setup where they have time to process. So the responses have been by and large, very positive and very curious. Um, some people have asked about, started thinking about putting a sign on their house saying this house belonged to so-and-so, you know. 
it's not necessarily safe at this moment in Jerusalem to do, but it's interesting that people are considering if there is a way to, to do that. From the Palestinian side, I don't, Marina, do you wanna talk about that a little bit? I haven't felt any criticism, nothing negative from the Palestinian side, far from it. Um, only, only um, in a way gratitude for, for restoring their past to them and for making their places ac accessible to them again, albeit digitally. Um, I, I haven't felt anything, no negative criticism. Yeah, and I think there are emotional re reactions for sure. There are very emotional reactions. And I think that's, that's to be expected and we have to make space for that. I think there are people, when people lose their lives, not, not literally, but their, their homes and their possessions and their social network, because everything broke apart. Everyone ended in a, in a diaspora somewhere. Um, they don't necessarily always talk about it to their kids. It's the trauma is sometimes too, too big. So, um, and sometimes they're, they're not there. We have definitely had people who said, I wish I could go now and talk to my, my grandparents, but they're no longer there, but there's something of that collective history, even if it's not personal, that is available to them. That, like Marina just said, restored. Not just for Palestinians. Um, I had this incredible experience in Bristol presenting the project at a Palestinian museum. And um, the first person when the, when I, I have a, we have a way of kind of projecting it that is a little bit a filmic experience and then showing the map. And, and, um, and the first question was this uh, turned out South African, very young guy. And he, said to me, you know, after apartheid ended, uh, we, our neighborhood that we were living in what got developed, my father, my parents got some money, but were kind of forced out of where they were. And my father always, always laments the old house. And I've always been critical of him. I've always teased him about it, about it. He said, I'm going home from here. I'm calling my father and I'm apologizing to him. Just that experience, you know, he could, he, just gave him a sense of what it's like to to lose something like that. Which made me makes me wonder: has ever been a, like a case where the current uh, owners of those houses actually met uh, previous owners? Has ever been the case where you were able to have families meeting each other without actually making any claims or anything, but just to talk about perhaps the memories of the same uh, uh, house? We had. One, I, there, there is a film by Sahira Dirbas um, from I think 2007. Um, I'm blanking now on the title, it will come to me, um, where she just went with the Palestinian owners and knocked on doors. And I think five or six or seven people uh, allowed them in and there were very tense conversations. It wasn't exactly what we were trying to do. Um, I think what, wasn't exactly a surprise to me, but what became very evident was that mostly people wanted to talk about the good life they lost rather than about the loss itself. It was very important for Palestinians to kind of draw a very vivid picture of the life. So we, what we try to do with many of the projects is actually celebrate the life, not just the loss. Um, but we did have one, in, one occurrence where we, yeah, we were able to walk in and, uh, the woman allowed us in, um, but she argued that the British gave the house, this apartment to her father because he fought in the Second World War. You know, it was impossible to convince her that that could have not been the case because the woman standing in front of her was born in the room right there, right in, in 1941 or something, you know, so. Um, and she also said something about you have to put the past in the past or something like that. Yeah, there's a lot of trauma. We had a lot of trauma. Everyone had a lot of trauma. Let's just all get along, right? So, yeah, I did have some Israelis who contacted me who really wanted to find the families. Uh, but I'm very careful about that. It's, it's not always easy and not always a welcome request. I can only imagine that. 
I'm interested very much in what you mentioned, the, the life lost. And I, I was wondering if Marina, talking to your family, uh, through your mother, your, your father, uh, other, you know, the extended family, if you ever had the sense of uh, what was lost when they had to move out? But what was lost was the life that each of us expects, rightly or wrongly, to have in a place, in, a, in the place where they're born and live their lives. Um, my family and all the other families I know expected to live out their lives in Jerusalem, to get married, to have children, just the regular life we all expect to have. And then something happens and shows us that life doesn't work that way. For example, a pandemic, <laughs> as you know, we're in right now, it just, um, so it's, it's really the life. And that's what I'm trying to capture through my blog. I'm trying to capture that, that life and in a way, give it back to them since they couldn't live it out. Sorry, you should really talk about, um, you know, specifically like your mother and, and her milieu, they were so independent in Jerusalem and that independence was taken away from them later, right? It wasn't, they went from a very cosmopolitan city, riding bikes anywhere, doing whatever they wanted, getting an education to a much more provincial place. Yes, yes. And that's that interruption, uh, the, the lifestyle, um, your everyday reality. And yes, what Dorit is referring to is, you know, yes, my, my mother and um, her friends, I mean, they were part of the Greek community of uh, Jerusalem, which was probably the largest expatriate, if you like, community. Uh, they had a lot of independence. They, you know, my, my mother had boyfriends, you know. Um, her first boyfriend is the, um, <laughs> was the uh, brother of one of our other participants, whose daughter now is my best friend. So we often kid with um, the children that we could have been brother and sister. Um, things that when they went to Cyprus, these things were unheard of. It was not allowed. They were not allowed to go, women in Cyprus at the time of um, urban women of that society were not allowed to go out and chaperoned. And there was my mother and her sisters and her cousins, and they had male friends, not necessarily boyfriends, and they go out on their bikes. And Cypriot society looked down on them a little bit as if they were, you know, slightly loose women, you know. Um, so that was lost as well. Yeah, and I think what you mentioned, and Dorit used the, the key word, I mean, by 1948, Jerusalem was a cosmopolitan city comparable to many others around the world. And, and there was a character that was lost and perhaps something just similar happened after 67, even though different, under different circumstances. And as many guests of the, of the show mentioned, I mean, when you look around Jerusalem nowadays, yes, you have a lot of people speaking different languages, but the sense of a cosmopolitan life is not there. I mean, it, it might be uh, confusing to think about cosmopolitanism as just uh, people of different ethnicities or languages, but it was really the question of living the life as Marina just mentioned. I mean, they had opportunities, which nowadays are, are not simply possible. And certainly between 48 and 67, they were separated. I want to ask uh, both of you something um, about, again, the project, uh, in a sense that in the last decade or so, there's been a proliferation. And I know these words might, may sound negative, but I, I don't think it's negative. But certainly there's been a number of projects dealing with the 3D reconstruction of a city, mapping of a city, uh, collection of pictures and other material. Some do have a you know, political goals, and this is very much in the open. Others are just really trying to recover the life. And my understanding is that Jerusalem, we are here, is really very much about recovering uh, the life of a specific neighborhood within the context of a city. But how do you see uh, these projects in the future? How do you think, uh, and, and if you think so, uh, these projects can actually help uh, a process of reconciliations between people? You know, the word peace and the word 
reconciliation have been overused so much. So I, I think what I would like to start with is justice and equality. So I think that we need political justice and we need economic justice for anything to be able to move forward in, in with, with stability, with a future. Otherwise it will be unstable and, and there, will, there will always be trouble. Um, to me, um, personally, I mean, the project doesn't, didn't ask a, a political questions. And I think for some, for some participants, even heavily involved participants, it was really just about making the past known. It's about the research and making it visible and accessible. To some people, it has a political, it makes political statements about the present and the future. And we, we didn't pose a kind of a condition or uh, about that in participating. For me personally, as an Israeli Jew, the only way I see moving forward is uh, with a binational state. That's just, I, I think that two states are, uh, that possibility if it ever existed is, is long gone. So then when we think about sharing the space, we have to think about it both physically and this neighborhood, which was affluent in, in 1948, has become a slum later because it was where refugees, very poor refugees were brought first from the old city of Jerusalem. There were ultra-Orthodox, not uh, highly prized by the Zionist secular government, stuck together into a bunch of apartments. Later, there were um, immigrants from the Arab world, Jewish immigrants from the Arab world brought in. They would leave four or five families in one apartment. And uh, people started kind of building sheds and blocking uh, balconies. And slowly, it has been gentrified. The neighborhood has been gentrified in two waves in the 60s by Ashkenazi Jews that wanted nice, beautiful Palestinian homes, which they didn't call Palestinian homes, they called Arab homes. And um, for the past 20 years, the only people who can afford there are fairly rich American Jews or French Jews. So um, to me, we have to think about the space. We have to think about gentrification. We have to think about the, the others of Zionism, which are not only the Palestinians, it's also the Mizrahi Jew. Some are calling themselves Arab Jews. It's also the ultra-Orthodox Jews. Um, even though they have a certain political power now, they're very much on the margins of the Zionist Israeli state project. We also have to accept Islamization in Jerusalem. And so we, we have to actually think of the city quite differently, but without reparations and without the possibility for people, the option to return and without the acknowledgement that the space should be, um, uh, that was and is and that Palestinians have a right rights to it that could be realized in multiple ways, I don't think we're going anywhere. So for me, uh, what I'm hoping is that in an indirect way, Jerusalem we're here encourages people to start imagining what would it be like to share this space? You're walking, you're walk, virtually walking the street and it's the way that the Google car shot it, filmed it in uh, 2011 and 2012. But what you're hearing in the audio is sounds that were heard over the radio in the 1940s in Jerusalem, Palestine. This disconnect, this anachronism, to me, it's what we should aspire to kind of in, in the future. Whether art can do that, I don't know. And I really did not want to do a didactic project that says this is the solution because I don't even know what the solution is. I think we just have to break away from the binaries of either or. And the either or is never has never been just two. It was never Palestinians and Israelis or Jews and Arabs. It's it's breaking down to so many more um, other groups, subgroups that um, and, and we need to learn, we need to look to the past in order to have a better future. We need to learn how to live together um, in ways that um, we have forgotten, I think. I agree. I think it's important to look to the past. I think <clears throat> it's um, important for the purposes of acknowledgement because without that, you don't have anything. But I also wanna say that it can, um, also be a little bit of a trap because 
memory is not just about a place, it's also about a time. And if you rely too much on memory, you can disregard the fact that evolution would have happened regardless and the places would have looked different regardless. If everything had resolved itself in a beautiful coexistence sort of way, the place would look totally different today. It would have been developed probably more, who knows? And it's easy to fall into that trap, to think that you're going, a lot of these websites that I'm, you know, I'm aware of what you're saying, uh, there's a lot about, a lot of them about Cyprus as well, and people reminisce, and it's fine, and I think it's 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 useful both as an acknowledgement, as a memory, as a historical thing, but we forget that we it's it's not just the place; it's also the time that we're missing, and that we will never recover. I think this is a great image. It's not just the place, but it's the time, uh, really passing by. And I understand the sense of nostalgia. And, you know, when I look at these websites and pages, they're amazing. Um, but we also have to be conscious of the fact that, again, I mean, you know, something else happened and nostalgia doesn't really have help to bring back that. But it's good for the memory. And I think it's also good to recover the past. Uh, I, I'm a cynical historian and I'm trying to get less and less cynical. That's why I've become sort of a, in favor of like browsing these websites and try to uh, engage with these pictures from a different perspective. Uh, as I said, it, it's part of my sort of personal also career path. Dorit. Yeah, I, I, I wanna add to what Marina just said. I think one of the things that are probably, you asked earlier about reception and one of the things that is, is hard for Israelis is to face the fact that they can't just say it was Arab and they left, you know, they, if they watch the project, it becomes actual people visiting their houses and they can't get in or they can or the house no longer exists, whatever. And one of the things that are, is difficult for Palestinians is that the streets are filmed as they are in 2011 and 2012 and time has marched on. And as Marina said, even if, even if there was no Israel, even if it was Palestine class that that the class privilege that teachers and architects had of gardeners and drivers and all of that would probably not exist today. They might have had to split their own big houses into multiple units for their kids or developers would come in and, and take over. So um, having to come to terms with the fact that we are at a different historical moment. And if we want to look forward, we have to accept where we're now before we think about it. And one of, the, my, one of my experiences kind of privately when I talk to people that I'm in touch with, um, families who participated that I'm in touch with is that often the generation that lost the houses, they really want the rights back to that house. And the younger generation say, that's not my goal. My goal is to be an equal citizen. With my right, not, not obviously not necessarily an Israeli citizen, but in whatever confederation we have or whatever form we have, but to be to have the same rights. I want I want reparation, I want acknowledgement, I want all of that, but I don't need that particular house. I more than that, I need a recognition that we are we should be equal politically. And um, so so how do you nudge people towards that? And I think our structure, because so many of the films are not really about the past. They are about the present, um, encourages some of that, I hope. I also want to thank you for mentioning uh, a few information and a few things about Katamon post-1948, because that tends to be forgotten, particularly in the Israeli uh, sort of national official narratives, where Katamon had become this point of receptions of all of the Jews of many of the Jews coming from uh, uh, the Arab world, so Mizrahi Jews, mostly from Iraq, actually. You know, there is another narrative that gets lost uh, since it does not represent this uh, sort of uh, narrative of, uh, you know, conquest and redemption as envisioned by, uh, by the Zionists at, at that time. So I think this is an important element to mention that Katamon also went through that transformation uh, from an empty neighborhood to become a neighborhood that, that essentially welcomed refugees. Uh, but quite interestingly enough, because they were Arabs, and this is my personal view, they were not allowed to stay there, but they were then moved to uh, villages, but Safafa and others. 
So uh, then those houses, as you mentioned, were given back to elites. So I think there's also a class element here to remember, um, which I think is very important. Obviously, we're not going to explore here. We are moving towards the end of the interview, and I want to go back to where we started, to your Jerusalem. You know, we talked about the project. We talked about how the project works and um, sort of the impact. But I want to talk about your Jerusalem, considering that I'm talking to you uh, with different uh, uh, sort of origins, uh, Dorit uh, Israeli uh, Jewish and Marina Greek uh, Orthodox, right? Am I right? Yes. Um, different kind of uh, vision and experiences of Jerusalem. And my understanding is that obviously because of the different uh, stories, you also went back to Jerusalem in different times. Dorit, you were born there. Uh, Marina, you went back in 1986. Can I ask you just briefly to reflect upon your personal experience of the city? And when you are walking around the city, if you have a place that is close to your heart uh, or a time that is close to you, what would that be? Um, for me, it's the neighborhoods where my mother and her family live their lives. I know that Jerusalem for everyone is the old city, it's the churches, it's the holy places, it's the museum side of the city, if you like. But for my mother and her community, it was a real city. It didn't matter that it was this um, city that was the patrimony of the world, as everybody calls it, right? It was, it was their city. It's where they live their lives. And for me, those are the special places, those neighborhoods the Greek club, the, um, the region cinema, which today it's called Lev's Madar, but it's still there, the oldest running cinema in Jerusalem. That's what my Jerusalem is today. Yeah, I would say the same. I think um, the neighborhood that I grew up in is, has become uh, completely ultra-Orthodox and uh, I have, no friends that stay there and no it, it has changed quite uh quite radically and um my my connection now to Katamon and the German colony is very deep um I see it as a layered space I don't see it just as it is now I see it with all the pictures that we have in the project with all the interactions I had with people with all the stories I hear so um you know, for me, like going to sit at Villa Dakan, which is um, now the nature museum, which is like the oldest uh, nature museum you can imagine. It hasn't been um, changed since my childhood or before with glass cases with like, uh, I don't know what stuff, you know, like um, animal, dead animals. But the, the garden has really changed and there is a community garden there that is incredible and, um, very welcoming and um, there are structures where you can um, people like during COVID would come and pray on on Saturday because you could be covered but open to to the elements and or being at the Hansen uh, building which used to be a lepers hospital um, from 1900 until the early 2000s and now is an art center and has a cafe and a bar and also amazing, amazing uh, terrace garden because it was a self-sufficient um, uh, farm for the lepers. So um, those places have both history and present life in them that is very, very dear. And if I can add something, um, when Dorit and I are in Jerusalem together, we navigate the place using the old place names. Uh, first of all, her parents' home is, as she said, in what used to be an old soccer field. And that's always a very welcoming place for me as a visitor. Her parents have always received me with open arms. And then as we walk around the area, we refer to places with their old names. Um, for example, I let's go down Zananiri and then we can go, yeah, let's meet at the Greek club or let's meet at the Regent. We use the old place names and yet we're navigating the space today. 
it's fascinating. I tried a uh, couple of times to go around with uh, old uh, tourist guides. Uh, but as you mentioned earlier, a lot of streets have been changed and you know, new roads have been built. And yet it's still possible. I mean, there's certain parts of Jerusalem and not just the old city. I mean, particularly Sheikh Jarrah is the kind of place that you can still navigate with a, 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 you know, a 19th century, late 19th century uh, tourist guide. So, you know, history is still relevant. And I really want to thank you. Uh, so these were Doritna Aman and Marina Parisinou uh, of uh, Jerusalem We Are Here project. Thank you to both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Jerusalem Unplugged. This podcast is currently commercial free. There are no ads. The only possibility to stay this way is for you to please let your friends, your family and others who may be interested in listening to Jerusalem Unplugged know about this podcast. Let's increase the audience and let's keep the podcast commercial free. Thank you for listening. Until the next one. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The secret to visibly firmer, summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW.